You're listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast, with service members from across the military, sharing their stories of combat and survival. And now, here's your host, Mark Zeno. Welcome into the Hazard Ground Podcast. We always appreciate you guys being part of the show. This is a very special episode. We've interviewed a lot of people uh, on the Hazard Ground Podcast from all different walks of life, but we are getting our first father-son duo on the Hazard Ground podcast. Alvin Burt Grantham, A.B. Grantham, as he is known, was a sergeant in the Marine Corps when he got out. He fought in the Battle of Way 1968 in the Tet Offensive, and his son Joshua Grantham was a sergeant in the Marine Corps Recon Marine as part of Operation Iraqi Freedom, and they join us both now on the Hazard Ground podcast. A.B., Joshua, thank you guys so much for being here. Hey, glad to be here. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. All right, well, let's start with Dad, because uh, his story is a little bit different, and obviously it's the impetus for why Joshua got into the military. But, A.B., tell us how you got your start and why you enlisted and uh, what that was like. Well, back in the day, as we say, uh, the draft was uh, a big issue back when I was in high school, and my best friend, Fred Thrift, and I were in high school together, and uh, we knew the draft was coming up and we knew both neither one of us would be going to college uh so we decided that we were going to be drafted no question about it we decided we would wanted to go if we were going to go to fort war we wanted to go with the best so we wanted to go in the marine corps and we joined on what was back then called the buddy plan so that we could be together it uh, didn't quite work out the way we had planned, but uh, that was our initial uh, motivation. Now, you didn't know much about the war that was going on in Vietnam. W- were you scared? Were you just kind of like, this is what we have to do? I mean, kind of what were your feelings? Do you remember them? Yeah, it was kind of like uh, something that we have to do. It was part of our civic duty. Uh, like I said, the draft uh everybody back then got drafted so uh we decided that uh if we were going to have any control over our own destiny whatsoever that we would just go ahead and join and do it the way we thought was the best way to do it and what year was that do you remember 1967 okay so you go right to basic i assume because you had no military training or anything you go to your basic training and take me through the timeline until you get to vietnam Yes, sir. I I got to Paris Island, South Carolina on 26 June 1967, went through uh, basic training on Paris Island and then went to infantry training right after that with a short leave in between, went to California to did what they call jungle training and from there right on to Vietnam. And I was in Vietnam in late 1970. I'm sorry, 1967, November of 1967. Wow, that quick. (laughs) That's really, really fast. Did you know what you were going to be doing in Vietnam prior to getting there? No, sir. Uh, None of us had a clue. And when I landed at Da Nang from uh, Okinawa, I did not know one solitary person. Uh, I was told where to go, when to go, and how to go. And you just followed orders. And I wound up with uh, 5th Marine Regiment, uh, 1st Battalion, Charlie Company, uh, and was put in a uh, machine gun team 
a weapons platoon and put in a machine gun team as an ammo humper when I first got there. So how quickly do you get into fighting when you get there? I mean, what was the acclimation period like? Other Vietnam vets on the podcast have just, they've really told us how hot it was there and the weather was just unbearable at times. Yeah, it was, but there was really no training or any um, uh, acclimation time. You were put in a team and if it was your turn to go out the wire that evening, you went. And, uh, uh, you know, being a, a very newbie, uh, grunt or FNG as a lot of us call them, yep. <laughs> uh, we were, uh, yeah, we were, uh, we were looked down on by a lot of the guys we went with, but usually you could find one or two guys that would take you under their wing and teach you the ropes, but there was no, uh, no transition time whatsoever. When you hit the ground, you were supposedly ready. So the Tet Offensive doesn't start until 1968. You're there at the end of 1967. I mean, uh, did you see any fighting prior to Way and the Tet Offensive? We did. Uh, it was sporadic, uh, usually not large firefights or engagements. It was usually uh, uh, ambushes. Either we got ambushed or we were setting up an ambush and got ambushed, but it was normally just small, sporadic stuff, uh, snipers, VC, nothing uh, concentrated like facing a big, formidable force. Do you remember what it was like the first time you saw one of your fellow Marines go down? Yes, uh, it was on a uh, ambush in December of 1967. Uh, we were sitting in uh, security on some bridges along that route, and uh, uh, we were trying to guard one of the bridges from being blown by the VC and we got ambushed from behind that night and uh, one of the men in our uh, our unit, uh, our squad at that time had received several uh, shrapnel injuries and needed immediate medevac that night and we had to clear a LZ at the bottom of the hill and get him medevaced out that night. What were your thoughts and feelings? Do you remember what it was like when you first saw that? I mean, do you remember kind of, were you in shock? Were you like, oh my God, I'm going to die here? How did you feel? Well, I was scared to death, but I didn't feel like I was going to die. Uh, it was more of an anger uh, thing at that time when, you know, after a while in the bush and after getting shot at so much, you, you kind of lose that fear a little bit and, the fear always stays with you to some degree, but you lose it into a form of anger. It just makes you mad. Yeah, you know, I've heard that a lot, A.B., from other Vietnam vets, that they, they were more angry than anything. I mean, it, I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't know where you can draw the line between fear and anger, because it seems like it's a very fine line. Well, I guess it could be. Um, you know, uh, I don't know when... When our anger over there was uh, very fierce, uh, we had anger. Uh, when we got angry, it wasn't just at who was shooting at us. It was at the whole country. It right. was at every person over there. It didn't matter if they were uh, enemy or not. We were just angry for being there, angry for getting shot at, angry that our 
buddy got hit. We were just angry at everything and everybody. When you say angry about being there, I, I've heard this sentiment from other Vietnam guys. A lot of it, the, the anger is that, you know, our government put us there. Did, is that the way you felt? Uh, yeah, we felt that our government did put us there, and uh, we were angry about it. Uh, we were angry that we weren't given the opportunity to do our job that we were sent there to do. We felt that our hands were tied by quote-unquote rules of engagement and our leadership that we didn't feel like we were being led in the right direction and we could do a lot better with a lot and a lot more than what we were allowed to be able to do. No, that's certainly fair. Uh, so the Tet Offensive doesn't start until January, late January you know, 1968. And for those who don't know, Mark Bowden chronicled the Tet Offensive in a book he, that he was on the podcast, Way 1968 was the name of the book, and Way is H-U-E. Um, but you know, we, we discussed in detail uh, this battle. And for those who don't know, again, it lasted almost a year, uh, around a year, and it was some of the, the, the most heavy fighting in Vietnam, and it was a, a turning point in the war, as a lot of people, when they look back on it, see it. When the Tet Offensive and Way came about, what were you told prior to the mission, and, and what was your objective? Well, remember, I was a PFC, so I was told where to go, when, and how to go there. So we weren't told a lot. Uh, we didn't know what was going on and what happened. We just knew that there was a lot of fighting all around us. Everybody was getting hit. Uh, there was a lot of uh, explosions constantly everywhere. And we were just told that saddle up, we're going here and we're going there and we're going to do so-and-so. We, we weren't really given any detailed in, instructions or anything. And we were beefed up with extra people, which we thought were strange that we'd been operating what we called under to under strength uh for a lot of weeks prior to this but just before going into way we were given extra people and when we were given extra people we kind of suspicion something might be up yeah, something certainly was up as uh, it was just intense fighting. I mean, was it, did you get the sense that this was a different battle than things you had faced before? Oh, yes, very much. Uh, from the very beginning, when we got into Way City, and it was a city environment instead of a jungle, what we were used to fighting in the jungle, when we walked into the city and we knew that there was street fighting, we were out of our element to begin with right off the bat. We didn't know what we were doing. We didn't know how to street fight. And we knew then that it was going to be difficult. It's, inter and, it's uh, interesting you say that you didn't know anything about street fighting because that's a huge part of what we learn now, what we call mount operations, you know, uh, urban terrain and everything else and, and working in the city. You know, Josh, just to jump in here, when you hear that they were unprepared, it, it, it seems almost crazy because we've only fought in two environments in our lifetime, you know, the desert and, and, and a city, correct? <laughs> Yeah, um, but honestly, uh, through the training that I was lucky enough to be able to go through, it was uh, the instructors uh, would teach it to a point of, guys, we learn these tactics through the Battle of Way City. And so it was very unique for me of oh, being okay. 
uh, my dad fought in that battle. I was told about this as a, as a kid that it is old enough and appropriate enough for that story, you know, um, and growing up of, yeah, I get it. I understand it. And so honestly, our modern day tactics, you know, way city was our first really learning space for fighting within a city. And as you know, as well as I do that, um, fighting in a urban environment is what war is going to. Yeah, absolutely. All right, AB, when when you talk about not being ready and out of your element, um, did you feel that you were overmatched still? Oh, yes, by far. We we knew we were overmatched number-wise, and uh, we, we wanted bigger weapons, more firepower, and through... Uh, our leaders, we're, we were denied that because they didn't want to tear up the city, so to speak, and wouldn't give us the support, the larger guns and the more firepower that we needed to uh, take the city back. So it was a, uh, we felt hamstrung by the whole thing because uh, we knew we were going into an environment where the NVA is, was a very, very formidable force. They were not like the snipers and VC that we had been accustomed to seeing out in the bush in the jungle where they do a lot of hit and run and, and fight you on their turf. These guys were dug in and standing their ground and just defying you to come and get them. And that was, that was what we were up against. Did that turn to like helplessness? Did you feel like you guys had no way out? Oh, no. No, it, it really pissed us off. I mean, you know, <laughs> I dare you stand there, you know, buckle up. Here we come. I mean, uh, there were there were moments where we were, you know, always moments where we were scared, helpless or whatever, because it was it was a fierce battle. I can't even explain how fierce it was, but it was very, very high powered day and night sometimes. And uh, uh so we were determined. We had a job to do. We were sent to do this job, and we were determined we were going to see it through. Um, I went in with uh, Charlie 1, 1-5, uh, uh, 1st Platoon. The first day we went in, we had 53 Marines we went in the, city, in the Citadel with, and at the end of the day, we were left with 28. Oh, Wow. So that's the kind of that's the kind of bus all we walked into. Is there and, anything any particular instance that stands out to you that you saw? Oh, I, you know, uh, there was a lot of bloodshed. Uh, there were Marines down in the street in front of us that we couldn't get to. Uh, we didn't dare risk sending people after them unless we were absolutely sure that they were dead. Uh, so. Sometimes they would lay out there until dark and we could go out undercover to retrieve some of the bodies. But, um, yeah, it was so fierce that we we had a difficult time retrieving wounded off the feet. Well, I assume if that was the case, you know, a lot almost trying to get a wounded guy was feels like a death sentence for the person who had to do that. It was and it could have been and it was in some cases, but. Uh, you don't leave a wounded man 
uh, exposed. That's just not done. And if it was you or I, we would hope that somebody would have the guts enough to come out there and help us and save us and bring us back. And that's what we did uh, because that was our brothers laying out there. It wasn't some stranger or some enemy. That was our brothers that was helping keep me alive, and we're going after it. Do, do you remember a time where you had to go get somebody, and, and how much fear was involved in that, or were you able to block that out or what? Well, yeah, more than once. And it's, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult to explain. And you, you're kind of operating on an automatic at that time. Uh, not only are you mad, you're pissed off, and you're really, really uh, angry about what's going on, but you really want to recover what you have lost, and that's your brothers. And there were cases where, you know, we had to go out and get people to drag them to safety when, when – uh, you know, you just figured, well, I may get hit too, but I'm going out. And uh, uh, it's just something we did. You got wounded there in a way. Can you tell us about what happened to you? Yeah, I, as I said, I was in a machine gun crew. And machine guns are, are very formidable. They uh, have a lot of firepower. M60 was the crew I was in. And that morning, uh, early... Right when it broke daylight, uh, the NVA, which was right across the street, maybe 50 feet at the most, uh, they hit us with everything they had that morning, very hard. And the first round they fired was a rocket round right into the room of the house that I was in. And the intention was to knock out the machine gun and the firepower and then they could advance across the street to where we were. And that was, that's tactics. That's just uh, military, standard military tactics. And they were good at it. They, they did a very good job. Uh, we got hit very, very hard that morning. And fighting was hand-to-hand. It was, they were in the middle of us. And they had given orders to fix bayonets. And... There was that many all around, and uh, everybody in my machine gun crew got wounded from that rocket round except for me. And I grabbed, after dragging the wounded out the back of the house, I grabbed the machine gun, and they were calling for the machine gun on the corner. Uh, They were getting overrun on the corner of the street intersection, and I grabbed the machine gun and ran down to the corner, and... I see lots of NVA uh, enemy troops all around the house that supposedly had Marines in it. And the NVA was all around the house with a rifle shooting in the window uh, on the front porch, aiming the weapons at me. And I jump in another house next door to it and go to the window and start unloading the machine gun in that direction. And, uh, after a couple of minutes, somebody hollered at me and said, quit shooting, cease fire, there's Marines in that house. And I said, well, there may be Marines in that house, but there's NVA all around the outside of it. If there's Marines in there, they're either incapacitated or dead. Um, so it was that kind of environment that morning, and that went on for a little while where it was very intense gun battle 
between NVA and us, and that's when I caught a round in the center of the chest, uh, an AK-47 round. It went, hit me right dead center of the chest and exited out my back below my right shoulder blade. Wow. Okay. A lot to process here. Um, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) When you got hit, I mean, obviously you knew immediately you were hit, but what were you thinking and feeling? Well, when I got hit, um, it knocked me quite a few feet backwards because it hit right in the center of my chest on the bone and it knocked me several feet and I landed flat on my back and I knew I was hit very, very bad at that time. And my initial thought was that I'm not going to make it out of this one. This one is bad. And uh, uh, I just hollered that I'm hit, and a couple of Marines came up and started uh, initiating uh, first aid, helping me with uh, my wound. And But I knew that from the telltale signs of my body, I didn't believe I was going to make it at that time. Did you look down at the wound and, and just go into shock or what? <clears throat> no, I didn't. I didn't look at the wound at all. I knew it was bad, and I, I, I was having trouble breathing. It was what they call a sucking chest wound. When I tried to inhale, air would spurt out of the holes, out of my chest and out of my back. And when I tried to inhale, it would suck air in the holes and through my mouth. And that way I couldn't, I wasn't using my lung uh, to breathe, only the air sucking in and out of the holes right. with my wound. And uh, I knew I lost a lot of blood. And uh, uh, some of the guys that were with me took a bunch of what the doctor called was lucky strike cigarette packs and stuffed it in the holes to stop the air from coming in and out to keep me to breathing and uh, turn me on my right side. So my left lung wouldn't fill up with blood because my right lung was completely collapsed and shot through. And uh, so that's kind of how we stayed for a little while until they could evacuate me out. All right, the, the evacuating you out part, believe it or not, folks, it, it actually gets even worse. Uh, we'll get to that in a minute. But, uh, Josh, I want to bring you in here. Uh, when was the first time you heard that story? <clears throat> to the detail that I know that story, the first time was not until um, I came back from boot camp after I became a Marine. Uh, I had always known about the story and the picture uh, my, my father was a very humble man and never um, really talked about his Vietnam service growing up. Um, you know, again, he got came he came back and uh, society was a lot different than yeah. the the wars that I came back to and that you came back to, and um, so it was don't talk about it for him, and so that bled over to the family, although internally we knew and uh it's funny uh he he's my hero he's who i look up to uh pretty big shoes to fill and uh i find myself learning more every day i learned more once i finally earned the title of united states marine 
I learned more after my first combat tour. I learned some even even some more after my second combat tour that I hadn't known. And sometimes to this day, I still learn new things that he's just not been willing to share. And I don't blame him. Because some of that stuff is uh, between you and your maker. You know what I'm saying? No, absolutely. It's certainly... And you and I both, you know, can have the empathy for that as, as we've been through a war and uh, there are certain things you'll only share with God. And, and A.B., I, I respect that opinion. I thank you for sharing the story with us. You, you mentioned a picture, and I just want to give people a, a visual. There's a famous picture taken by a photographer named John Olson, who was an award-winning photographer. Uh, and this was uh, from the Battle of Way. And it's seven Marines on top of a tank being transported. And you can see... Um, several of them were wounded. One has a bandage wrapping around his entire head. Another one has blood coming out of his leg. And there is a Marine laying on top of a door um, that is shirtless um, with a bandage around his chest and looks unconscious, if not dead, in the picture. And that Marine happens to be uh, A.B. Grantham. And uh, when the photo was released, for those listening, no names were put on it or anything. It was just a photo. Uh, and it, again, it was an award-winning photo, and it kind of encapsulated um, the battle of way and, and everything that went into it. And it wasn't until years later and uh, AB, I'll allow you to tell the story when you finally realized that you were in that photo. But, um, Joshua, again, when, when you hear your dad tell these stories, what's your emotional feeling like? Oh man. First of all, I want to say is he doesn't look any better today than he did there. He's still an ugly old man. <laughs> you don't have to take that from him. AB. you don't have to take that from him. That's, that's one. <laughs> well, you know, and here's the cool part, you know, and this is kind of part of what you talked about in the podcast of uh, not only we father and son, but we're also brothers and best friends and he's my hero. So it's, it, it's a very unique thing. But to get back to your question of, of, of what do I think about that? It's uh, not really a lot of words can say that I, I'm in awe. It's, um, uh, the best thing that I can give you is I revert back to what the Marines taught us is, and, and it's to uphold that honor and that courage and the commitment that those guys had, not only my father, but for my father's, uh, best friend that, that died over there and all, and all of the service members, not just the Marines, uh, it, you know, it's, it's, it's a tremendous, uh, reputation that, that we have strived and all the guys that I served with, um, tried to strive to uphold. You know, I, what I think about when I hear stories from Vietnam vets and much like similar to yours, AB, is I think, holy bleep, thank God, uh, I don't have to fight under those conditions. Like I never had, I, I, I at least I remember going outside the wire. I had body armor like i had you know more protective equipment now than those guys ever had and, and you know ab a lot of vietnam vets just say well we didn't know that we weren't going to have armor like if we had known we would love to have had it we, we never had it back then and, and i'm just amazed at fighting a battle like that in general would literally scare the piss out of me like it just would because i, I would feel naked not going out without my kevlar and my body armor right i mean when did we ever leave the wire josh without full kit on well, uh, my story might be a little bit different, <laughs> depending on depending on the mission that I did. Uh, but yes. um, uh, I actually, the old man won't admit it, but 
he actually had his um, uh, body armor on. And and one of the interesting things too is the evolution of the body armor. He had the old school flak jacket zip up with the four panel plates ah. that were inserted. And they hit him right in the zipper. Well, there was no coverage there. Oh, you got to be now, kidding me. Now, when I left the wire, I had my plates on, but it had that same thing that you had that you inserted mm-hmm. that covered the vital organs on the front and the back. Got it. Yeah. Wow. Crazy. All right, A.B., let's, let's get back to this here for a minute. So um, you, you they have stopped or slowed the bleeding. You're back to breathing somewhat. Uh, tell us when you finally get evac'd out of the area, uh, and again, that picture you guys rolled out on a tank, you were laying on a door, um, but what do you remember what happened next? Well, uh, I remember it was a very, very rough ride. Uh, <laughs> tanks, tanks have no shock absorbers at all, I tell you that now. And when you're busted up in the ribs and the, in the chest, it hurts like hell. But uh, I remember the ride very, very vividly and was trying to stay conscious as much as possible, but it was in and out. And I remember back at one of the aid stations just before they took, uh, took me to Fubai where they had a mash unit, they had to actually put me in a body bag because we had so many people wounded at that time. There were so many down that the corpsmen were just overwhelmed and they couldn't get to everybody. So they were helping out who they could and trying to uh, save as many as they could with the means that they had. If they didn't figure that you were going to make it anyway, they just kind of put you aside and help somebody else that would make it. And um, I was put in a body bag, and I remember laying there, and I heard one of the corpsmen say that this one's not dead yet. Well, I didn't know he was talking about me at the time, but I remember thinking that poor son of a bitch must be hit bad if he said he's not dead yet. Can we say that? Can we say that on the podcast? Yeah, you're fine. I'm just, I mean, I'm folks, sorry. listen, but, to, just think about this visual here for a second. I'm sorry. So you were alive and they tried to zip you in a body bag for a dead person. That's correct. That's correct. And that wasn't, that wasn't uncommon um, then, to be honest with you, if, if somebody was uh, hit bad enough to where the corpsman knew they couldn't save them, uh, they'd just put them aside and let them go because we had more people that needed help. And as bad as that sounds, um, you know, when you're in war in a situation that we were in, you just, everybody did the best they could. And, uh, you know, that's just a fact of war, fact of life. But uh, I, re- I don't remember much after that other than I remember being put on the chopper and being choppered to uh, Fubai, to the mass unit, and was rolled inside the mass unit, and there were just row after row of operating lights hanging from the ceiling, and it seemed like hundreds of people in there to me, but it was it was very loud, lots of screaming, lots of hollering, lots of people running around, and... They threw me on a table, stripped all my clothes off of me, started giving me shots, and the doctor started cutting my chest open even before I was out. And that hurt very bad. And that's the last that's the last I remember. Um, let me 
did you at any point recognize that it, or I should say, when you recognized that you were the one in the body bag that he was talking about? Like, what were you thinking? What 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 goes through your mind? Well, I I didn't at the time even really recognize it. I was just thinking, you know, I need some help here, and uh, you know, <laughs> but they got somebody else that sounds like that needs help worse than I do, because he said this one's not dead yet, and I didn't. I, did, I guess I just didn't realize at the time that uh, the severity of the situation that I was in. And by that time, I'd lost so much blood and was in and out of consciousness so much that I don't remember a whole lot. So there, there was no my whole life flash before my eyes kind of deal? Oh, yeah. There was a lot of that. I, uh, I did have a, a lot of time and as i told uh somebody just this past week i was interviewing with uh, a producer that's doing a documentary that it actually became peaceful after a little while uh where your mind goes to a place that is actually peaceful and i remembered way back when i was five years old and you know 10 years old and all of the family stuff and you think about your mother and you you know, your loved ones and all back home and you just knew you weren't going to be able to see them again. So you just enjoyed them in your mind at that point. So it, it becomes a peaceful time uh, at that point. Okay. So when you get evac out there and you start your recovery process, that, that obviously ends your time in Vietnam and you don't go back, correct? Oh, that's correct. Yeah. Okay. I spent uh, all together about 12 months uh, in and out of the hospital, mostly in a uh, little over 12 months, really mostly in the hospital with several other conditions other than the gunshot. But I lost, uh, I weighed 165 pounds when I got shot. When I got back, I weighed 119 pounds. I lost uh, 46 pounds in less than two months. Wow. And I didn't have any fat on me to lose at that point. So. If I hadn't have been in such great physical condition, uh, if the Marines hadn't had me in the physical shape that I was in, I would not have made it. No way. Man, I'm just trying to, like, I can't even, you know, Josh, when you hear the whole thing in its entirety, um, and obviously he's your dad, but do you stand there and look and go, I don't ever know how he became my dad because how is he still here? You know, it's hard to think about that. Um, um, part of that stuff is uh, why he's my hero, that he had the uh, uh, physical and spiritual and mental fortitude to fight through that and to stay alive so I could be here. And he's my hero. That's a little bit what drove me to become a Marine. And when I say a little bit, I mean a lot. <laughs> um, so let's kind of shift here, you, you know, picking up on that same point. Um, growing up as a kid, your dad never talked about Vietnam or the Marine service, or did he? Very little. It was known that my dad was a Marine. <laughs> Yeah, uh, at, at the age of five years old, I was put to bed as a position of attention. 
and it was after my mother tucked me in was sweet. My dad would sit at the lights and go, ready, sleep, and turn the lights out. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and funny enough, I do this to my child now, my five-year-old. <clears throat> and, um, uh, and I would be woken up with, uh, wake up, ladies, get your war gear on. As a kid, I'm like elementary school. So I, I never knew what that meant. It was just dad's waking me up. And that was really most of the reference. Other than that, he never really talked about it until I got a little bit older. And even then, it was just, yeah, I was there. That's my picture. I don't want to talk about it. So you asked questions, but you were kind of denied. Yeah. And it made sense because there's no way I could understand it. AB, at that time. AB, why were you yeah. so hesitant to tell him anything about the Marines? Like, even, even just about what being a Marine was like or anything else. Uh, forget, you know, the, the war stories of Vietnam. Were you, I mean, everything in general you were hesitant to talk to him about? Well, yeah. At first, if he was going to go in the military, I wanted him to go in the Air Force. Definitely not the Marine Corps. But uh, I... Uh, Back then, during that day and time, when I came back, it was uh, wasn't cool to be a Vietnam veteran. As a matter of fact, uh, it was a detriment to your uh, to you as you looked on from public standpoint. So many of us Vietnam veterans hid the fact that we were Vietnam veterans because uh, it was it would. Uh, give people a preconceived notion of who you were before you even had a chance to prove yourself insofar as getting jobs or meeting people or any, anything at all. Uh, there was a very, very uh, bad climate in the, in, the, in the country at that time and a bad feeling toward the war and the Vietnam veterans. So when we came back, we didn't come back as a unit. We came back one by one whenever our rotation was up or we got hit and got out of the hospital. So we, we were alone and we were thrust back into the civilian world and we were you know, expected to fit in, which we didn't. But we had to adjust our behavior and our uh, mind frame in order to fit in. So we tried to be like everybody else and hide the fact that you were Vietnam veteran because you didn't want them to have bad feelings about you, especially on job interviews and things like that. So it was something that we kind of did for a long time and it became second nature. Uh, we buried the war way back in our soul and our mind somewhere and didn't talk about it. Did that make you more inquisitive, Joshua? To a degree, yes. Because I had seen the picture and kind of wanted to know, like, how did you go from that to where you are? Because my father's a very humble man and he won't talk about himself. But the things that he has done since his service um, should be as commended as what he did. Um, he He's the only person that I know that has a master's degree in an executive MBA that does not have a high school diploma nor a undergraduate diploma. 
Wow. But he has an MBA. You figure that out. No, I can't. I still, I'm still, I'm still <laughs> trying to figure that out. It was back in the day before the digital stuff, and he just kept blending in and doing it. He became a good chameleon. All right. Well, I, I love the connective tissue between the whole thing. I want to get back to that more. But Joshua, I do want to hear about your experience. So you you enlist in the Marine Corps. What was the conversation with your dad uh, like when you said, hey, I, I want to go be a Marine? <laughs> it, was, it wasn't really a conversation. It was a surprise. This is what I did. Oh, OK. Yeah, because that wasn't going to be allowed. Um, my father served in Vietnam and did his story and he thought that he had did enough and uh, his uncle uh, died on the beaches of Normandy. Uh, my grandfather worked in the shipyards in Mobile. Um, uh, his brother was in the Navy during uh, uh, Korea. He was like, like, look, the Grantham family's done enough. I did all this so you don't have to. Right. So, A.B., when he comes home and says surprise, what's your reaction? Really shock and dismay. I, I was uh, afraid for him, and I did not want him joining the Marine Corps uh, for the reasons of all of the stuff that I went through and, and knowing that he may be have, have to go through the same thing. But uh, I was really kind of upset. Well, was you, were you more upset because it was at a time of war and we had already, you know, we were already into this thing? I mean, had it been at peacetime, would you have had less reservations about it, A.B.? Well, I, probably that had a lot to do with it, time of the war. But um, I really, uh, as far as I would rather had him go into the Air Force or some other branch that he could learn more of a trade than killing people. Uh, Marine Corps, I mean, that's, let's face it, be honest. I mean, that's what the Marine Corps does. That's what we're for. That's what we're trained to do. And that's not what I wanted for my child. Well, what's done is done, Joshua. You enlist in the Marine Corps. You head off to boot camp. Give me your timeline before you get to your first deployment. All right. So I do the uh, uh, little, little backstory. Uh, I'm a sophomore in college. Uh, when the uh, 9-11 attack occurs. And uh, I've woken up and watched this. I watch it on live TV and I've been thinking about it because at this point in college, I was majoring in chasing tail and drinking booze, right? Wasn't really concentrating on something. And then I, I always have this tug at my family core this is what my family does we step up when the nation needs us uh one thing that my father did not tell you is that he dropped out of high school to join the marine corps in 1967 he did not wait to be drafted it's kind of a interesting point on that story and so that's i felt i, I felt the duty finish that semester up said, I, I'm doing it. I'm joining. And I, and I joined. And so I joined January, uh, after nine 11 and, uh, did boot camp. Um, got back. I originally was going to sign a reserve contract. I thought it was going to be slick. 
and I joined Third Force Reconnaissance Company and uh, on a pipeline contract where I have to uh, do boot camp, infantry school, and then also recon school and a bunch of other schools that I had to do. <laughs> so uh, out of my entire uh, time, I, I served from uh, January of 2002 to October of 2008. I spent less than nine months on actual reserve status. The rest of it was active duty. Okay. So how quickly do you end up in a deployment? Uh, I got notice in October of 03 that, yeah, we're about to go replace the, uh, the initial push. We knew we were going to be coming, coming out of there very soon. And so, uh, we started our workups, uh, in, in October and then we deployed. I, and I was boots on ground. Uh, February the 1st of 2004 uh, with the uh, 7th Marine Corps Regiment. We uh, took over um, the uh, uh, 3rd Infantry Division, the 3rd IDs spot in Al-Assad. Okay. So, A.B., uh, when... Joshua calls you and tells you that he's going to deploy. What was your feelings and reaction? Um, that's one of the uh, most emotional, worst moments of your life is to hear that your child is going to war. Um, I can only think of one worse at this point. And I lost a son to an accident, a plane crash back in 2010. And I can't think of anything worse in this world than losing a child. And I guess the next would be to hear that you have a child going to a battle zone. And, you know, you try to keep a good faith. You try to keep a good uh, uh, attitude about it. But uh, in reality, it's, it's very, very, very difficult. And when, while he was over there, uh, he was, uh, we'd talked to him some, you know, on the sat phone from time to time. And we knew he was just outside of Fallujah. And at the time, Fallujah was a very hot spot. And the news had came on uh, the TV and said that uh, Marines are moving into Fallujah. And they haven't seen battle like this since the Battle of Way City in Vietnam. And that'll get your attention because, you know, as you know, that's where I was. So I knew what he was heading into, and that really stirs you up pretty bad. Were you more forthcoming with, <laughs> you know, stories and advice and everything that you went through, A.B., when you found out he was going to deploy to try to help, like, kind of guide him through and give him some tips or anything like that? Well, yes, to some degree, um, yes. Uh, we When we talked, uh, it was more on a brother Marine basis at that point in time because it was about survival. Uh, it wasn't, uh, you know, I couldn't protect him anymore. So it was, I felt that it was my responsibility or my job to help him make it through whatever he was facing to go through. 
Joshua, were you happy that he opened up to you more? Uh, I don't know if happy would be the word. Um, it is, uh, he was already my hero and my father. And since I, I had be, had earned the title of United States Marine, we became brothers, but it just made it that much closer. Um, but hearing his stories definitely helped because we knew we were going into Iraq and doing city fighting at that, at, at that time for the uh, OIF too. And um, like I told you earlier, um, we learned off of his um, experience of how to fight in the street. And so that was where some of our tactics and uh, procedures were developed from and we improved on. Um, I don't know. It, it just created this weird, great, tight bond that my mother jokes and says that we have a mutual worship society. It's weird. <laughs> okay, so what were you told during your first deployment that you were doing? <clears throat> um, well, um, our, our basic thing, I, I was with uh, uh, 3rd Force Reconnaissance Company. We got attached to 1st Force Reconnaissance Company. Um, and our job was to uh, do a couple different things. Uh, we were there to do counterinsurgency uh, and counter IED stuff. So basically, in, in the area of operation, we would set up... Uh, hide sites and do watchovers so that people couldn't put in IEDs over uh, high, highly valuable um, MSRs or military supply routes, sorry. Um, um, and then we would also do uh, raids where we would go uh, from intel that we would get, we would go do a SWAT team-like raid on a location to capture high-value individuals. And so when you get into your first kind of uh, round of fighting, um, after you get back and everything else, and you kind of take a moment to breathe, did you want to talk to your dad about it? Did you feel that, hey, you know, I, I want to let him know what's going on kind of deal? Oh, yes. I, w I was like... Hey, I did this, and and because I finally knew that after I had been to combat and earned my combat action ribbon, he would finally open up and tell me the stories. Really? So kind of that was, I don't want to say motivation for you, but knowing that you had that kind of, you know, was, was your badge of honor, so to speak. Uh, no, it's not a badge of honor. It was more of a, I can finally get a little, another piece of the story, and they were so happy to have me back. And um, just that we could talk on an even deeper level at another point, you know, of, huh, all right, now I understand what it's like being shot at or having mortars shot at you. And so, A.B., were, did you have the same feeling now that he had, you know, gotten that, that badge and he was back? I mean, did you feel like you could open up to him more? I felt like he would understand more about what, I was talking about and what we went through. I felt like he would uh, be able to absorb more of the story at that time. Yes. 
And so what were some of the things that you were more willing to tell him, so to speak? Well, you know, the day-to-day stuff that civilians, as you know, will never understand what it's like to be in combat and to be in situations. And there's no way, shape, or form that you can explain it to anybody. So um, any of the day-to-day operations that we went through and some of the uh, stuff that we saw and some of the things that we did uh, in particular were uh, more accessible stories that I could share with him, whereas he wouldn't be able to absorb or even understand before he went through combat. So, Josh, you kind of have this this new bond and this new kind of relationship with all this extra information. Um, did you... Did that kind of, I guess, give you a little more want to stay in the Marine Corps longer? Or did you feel like that maybe you did what you needed to do and you can get out? Because you stayed in, I think, what, for a total of six years? Around about, uh, around about six years, a little, little over. Um, um, but after going through that and, and, and having uh, Pops as my father, um, again, I joined a reserve contract. And... And the reserve contract, once you get called up on presidential orders, you're relieved of any obligation. Right. And so uh, we got back. Everybody's happy, doing good. But we know this ain't going away. And so uh, that was the one of the hardest things I had to tell my parents was that I got to go again and I don't have to i'm not contractually obligated but at that time and it's the difference between what my father went through and what i went through um when he went out they went out as individual people they did not deploy as a group Uh, as he said earlier he deployed out there as a individual they got thrown into a group hey here's your people here's your gun go get them the difference in some of the, the, the learning process that uh, the Marine Corps and, and the United States military learned as a whole was that doesn't create really great unit cohesion. And so with us, <laughs> uh, the group of guys that I deployed with, uh, we had been together for a couple of years, about a year before deployment, through deployment, and getting ready to go to another deployment. And so, although I did not legally have to go, I could not look my dad in the face and go, yeah, I'm going to stay home because you don't want me to, to go. And I'm going to let those guys go and risk their lives. AB, were you okay with that decision or did you try to talk them out of it? No, I was okay with it. I, I understood at that time. Once, once, uh, once you have that experience, then I felt better about his second deployment than I did his first. Really? Yes, I did. I, I felt more confident uh, uh, in his ability and, and the people he was with and the people that was uh, uh, leading him and where he was going to be. And I, I felt even more confident on his second deployment than I did his first. Did you feel more confident on your second deployment, Josh? Yes, I did. At that time, I thought I was 10 foot tall and bulletproof. Um, <laughs> and, and unfortunately, you found out you're not. 
Oh yeah, I found out real quick, fast and in a hurry. But um, you know, uh, our core group of guys within our platoon uh, were the same people. We had the same platoon sergeant and the same platoon commander. And at that time, with what we were doing, we were pretty good at what we did. Um, I had I had watched them train for a long time and had been with them on some training issues and stuff and uh, was intimately involved with a lot of the people that he was uh, with as a unit and his uh, leaders, his sergeants, platoon sergeants, captains, uh, lieutenants, all the way up. And um, their training and regiment and their cohesiveness as a unit is what gave me the confidence that I had whenever he was going back. Uh, I knew that they were as prepared as anybody could ever be for what they were going into. So, Josh, your, your first deployment, you come out unscathed <laughs> relatively obviously, but not the case on your second deployment. Uh, what happened? Uh, the short story was I missed a hole. <laughs> basically uh we were raiding a house what we did uh we would like i said earlier we were like a swat team we would go in uh and uh go do raids on high value targets and um uh, getting from our intel and without getting into the stuff that i can't talk about or shouldn't talk about but it was you know go get the bad guy go raid that house and uh, we went into one scenario and uh, <sighs> I missed a, a big hole. It was a four foot hole and I fell into it and blew my ankle out. Uh, yeah, it compared to my old man story. I'm like, yeah, I should have just jumped up and kept going into the fight, but I couldn't walk. But um It's, uh, it is what it is. I, uh, continued on with the mission. Uh, we still successfully, uh, completed what we needed to do in raiding that area. And I got the intel that we needed to get. I had to do some rehab and I got back into the fight a couple of months later. Did you feel like, I mean, I, I, the way I phrase this question sounds silly in my head, so forgive me if it comes out that way, but did you feel like you didn't live up to what your dad went through because of what happened to you versus what happened to him? Was there any of that going on in your mind? Oh, it still does to this day. Now, why does uh, that bother you? Uh, like I said earlier, uh, I have a tremendous reputation to uphold. Uh, whether that that reputation wasn't to go be a bullet cage, uh, catcher. Right. Um, but, uh, I don't know. I hold him in high, high regard, but uh, on the other hand, I, you know, I did exactly what my job was, uh, to, a, you know, to the best degree that I could. Um, and we also had a lot different jobs when he was in Vietnam. He was a machine gunner in a different war 
I was I was a recon marine in a different war. So his job was to seek out, close with, and destroy the enemy with fire and maneuver. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Whereas my job was a little bit different. Sure. Uh, I was our our company, our platoon, my team was to be the forward eyes and ears of the commander. Uh, and the recon job is a, little, a lot different than the infantry job. Absolutely. Even though it's it, even though it's still a infantry position, um, we're supposed we're supposed to run from fight. We're traditionally right. Right. We're supposed to be there to gather intel. Now, on some things, we would bring the fight. You know, I can think of, uh, you know. In 2006, we would do some missions where we would load up on on some birds and <clears throat> basically go look for a fight. You know, travel travel to MSRs and just be there as a show of force. And if something popped up, well, guess what? You got a recon team there that can go do stuff. And we were able to do some some really good work. Um, as far as you know we saved some hostages that were about to get killed and got the bad guys you know all the tied up with apple pie um so i i don't hammer myself at all in thinking and we don't do the competition of he served better than i did or i served better than he did we were both there to do our jobs and it was a much different job. Although we do talk about that, although Vietnam and Iraq or Afghanistan, the war on terror generally are two different wars. There's also a lot of comparisons that it's the same war, but in a different climate. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So AB, when, you know, you hear your son say that he has a lot to live up to, when you look at what he's done and completed, I mean, I'm sure you feel like he's already lived up to it and more. Oh, exactly. And, you know, uh, I, I didn't do anything especially great. Um, yeah, I was on a picture, um, but that picture is a point in time, uh, just a second. It's a, it's a flash of what the battle of way was. I just happened to be there at that time. So did the rest of the guys on the tank. We weren't chosen. We weren't heroes. We weren't anything else. We were just in a picture that happened to be become popular. Uh, not unlike the guys raising the flag on Iwo Jima. They, you know, they were in the picture and they just happened to be there in the picture at that time. And, I don't compare the two pictures. Don't don't get me wrong, because the guys on Iwo Jima are river to me, but it is a picture in time, and it it's uh, the whole story about what the Marine Corps is and does throughout the years is documented, and it's you know everybody knows about who the Marine Corps is and what they do, and so. Uh, I didn't do anything any more than anybody else. Uh, to me, the Marines today are much more, are much better than we were. 
they're more highly trained and more physically fit. They have more high technology weapons. They have more equipment, better equipment. Uh, they're so much better than we were back then. But I keep we was telling that Mark, but he's still calling me a boot. <laughs> but, but, but we were what we were, and we were the best America had at the time. And we did what we we could, and we did our best. And that's all you can ask of anybody. And that's what the Marines do today. And so, you know, we were no more, uh, no more of a hero than any of the other Marines before us. It's the ones that didn't make it back was the heroes. But, uh, um, you know, Marines today are very, very, very good. Very good. Understatement. <laughs> um <laughs> I would like to ask you, I mentioned the picture before and I described the picture uh, earlier. And again, you didn't know you were in it. And I wanted to tell that story because I think it's very poignant. How did you find out that you were in that picture and who told you? I was in the hospital at the time and I had a brother-in-law that lived in Fort Walton Beach, Florida. And he was getting a haircut in a barber shop and picked up a magazine and was reading a magazine. Uh, before he was called to the barber's chair and he looked in the magazine and saw that picture and instantly recognized me and brought it to the hospital in Pensacola, Florida, where I was. And he said, look, I believe this is you. And I looked at the picture and I said, well, yeah, that is me. And my uh, mother had, of course, found out about it as well. And she wrote life magazine at the time and life magazine sent her several copies of the photo in in folders and stuff and i still have one of the one or maybe two of the originals that she that they sent out and it's been publicized in a lot of magazines and publications since then but it was just serendipity that my brother-in-law happened i Probably would have ran up on it again later or something, but uh, it was a brother-in-law of mine that initially saw it and brought it to our attention. So when you saw it, did did you look at it and remember anything? Point? Do you remember laying on the door and everything else, or that were that? I, I remembered every minute of that because okay. that was painful. That was a painful ride. <laughs> it it was not a Lincoln I was riding on. It was a tank. It, it did not have any shocks. And that's just a, uh, when you see the picture, Josh, and, and, you know, when you and your dad talk about the picture, kind of what do you feel about it? Kind of like what my old man said is that, uh, you know, it's a legacy we got to uphold. And as Marines and as brothers, like he said, it's uh, he was trying to just do the best he could to uphold and defend uh United States of America and the Marine Corps' honor from the legacy that was left from him from Iwo Jima and World War II. And that's kind of the same mindset I carry into Iraq. So where are you guys now with all this? Obviously, Josh, your military career is over. You've gone on to bigger and better things. You're a lawyer now, and uh, I assume, A.B., you're, you're happily enjoying retirement. Um, but when you guys get together over a beer or whatever, do you end up retelling a lot of these stories to each other? Well, Mark, if I could, I, I would like to take this. Um, 
what has been the best therapy for both of us? Not only is sitting down and talking to each other because we have similar experiences, although they're different, but is it, it's getting involved in um, in helping out other veterans. Um, me and my father are both lifelong uh, life members now of the Marine Corps League. He is actually the uh, Department of Alabama Commandant, which means he's basically the head honcho in charge of the state of Alabama Marine Corps League. Uh, I I am also a lifelong member of the Marine Corps League. Um, I also am the uh, general counsel of the Recon Sniper Foundation. Um, and, and all of these organizations seek out to help Marines, corpsmen, chaplains, but also other veterans. And, and, that, and that's what I see is what has helped both me and, and my father of uh, dealing with some of the issues that we may have is, guess what? Because this is just two stories, as you know, in your, in your podcast. And the point of it is getting the stories out there of, of uh, the stories that you don't hear. And, and so getting involved is you can learn something from getting involved with other veterans and being a part of their lives. Absolutely. A hundred percent. I mean, that's part of what this podcast is all about, but in general, it's just, there, there's so much to, to the after military experience that people don't get. And this question, I want to start with AB because I think it's poignant. You guys touched on it and we talk about it so much with Vietnam vets, you know, Vietnam vets, when they got home, they were spat upon, like they were treated like they were second class citizens and they weren't even good enough to call themselves American, which when I think back on it, just angers me because it's so disgusting. AB, when you look back on that and you see the way your son was treated when he got back and people like me were treated, what's your reaction? Well, our reaction was was great elation. It was, it was a huge relief because uh, we, as Vietnam veterans, wanted to make sure that that never happened again to any of our troops or any of our warriors that go to war and come back. And we did not want them to be in the same situation or be treated the same way that we were treated. Uh, we wanted to give them their due and their heroes welcome that they deserve. And so it was, it was super elation for us. And we, I guarantee you, we were on the front row waving the flags and welcoming them home and cheering them, uh, for all we could because that's what they needed. Did did you ever feel like why didn't we get this? I mean, that's a fair thought if you're if if you ask me. That's that is a absolutely fair thought that, you know, where were you guys before, so to speak? It is. Uh but if at that time it's water under the bridge. Uh it's it's in the past and let's move on. And we, most of us had already dealt with it. We've been dealing with it for years. Some of us are still dealing with it today. I told a, a guy uh, yesterday morning, I've been in therapy for 29 years and I plan to stay because I need it, not because I want it, because I need it. And that's just the way it is. And, uh, to see that these guys 
are and many of them are going to need therapy and and still have same some of the same problems we have PTSD and and some of the same emotional problems of war that we as Vietnam veterans had as well but it helps when the country is behind you and the civilian population is behind you and they support you and you have the support of everybody else around you it it really helps a lot so, Josh, when you think back to the way your father and his fellow Marines and soldiers were treated when they got back, uh, what's your response, given how much guys like you and me have been patted on the back and given thank yous all over the place? They were not treated uh, properly. Uh, again, it's a uh, war in politics, unfortunately, uh, get very close because war is basically an extension of politics that is a failed negotiation if you look at it by definition and um, I'm very pleased now that my father and his generation are finally getting their due again they were drafted they didn't sign up for that (laughs) they were told to go do it which is a little bit different from my generation is uh, and, and yours as well. Uh, of, we're all volunteers. We're, we try to do this because we have a sense of duty, and maybe we have a parent or a, a close family relative that um, uh, was drafted, and so they have that connection. So um, I, I will have to agree with my father. Again, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree in that, you know what, just happy that they're finally getting it and I'm not going to get into the politics of 69 because I wasn't even a twinkle in an eye, by the way. Hey, Mark, uh, one thing I I wanted to interject, I had uh, an interview a few weeks back and uh, was fortunate to be a part of a discussion with with, uh, Congressman Trent Kelly from Mississippi and he asked how, talking about the Battle of Way, how could you guys stay motivated knowing that the next morning you get up, that it's going to be the same thing and you're going to have to slug it out and it's a gun battle and it's a fight for your life and you're going to lose people and you're going to, you know, how did you stay motivated day after day after day to keep getting up to do that kind of thing? And I told him, well, we didn't want to go to jail because it was either that or jail because we were drafted or, right. you know, in Marine Corps, we weren't drafted, We, but we would have been. But that's that was our motivation back then was to stay alive and stay out of jail. So. Different times, obviously. I mean, just it's unreal to hear you guys talk. And uh, listen, I I think you're both incredibly blessed and lucky. And obviously, A.B., you know, lucky to be alive. But uh, you've gotten to this point. And, you know, to see your son uh, go be a Marine and and go serve his country and come back home to you and and your family has just got to be one of the most rewarding things in the world for you. And uh, I I just I love the synergy between you two. And I, I, I... 
I, I'm floored and so happy for you both. You know, I mean, I, I don't know how to how else to phrase it any other way, but it's just it's incredible. And hearing both of your stories side by side, uh, we we could talk for hours and days even about all this stuff. But it's just incredible to see a father and son have that connection because it doesn't happen often. Thank you, Mark. I appreciate it. Uh, thank a vet and pass it forward, and I appreciate it very much. And Josh, same to you, brother. And Mark, uh, what I like to say, and also to all the listeners that are out there that are, that will listen or are currently listening to this podcast, is don't let your service define who you are. There's a whole life in front of you. Go out there and continue to uphold the values that you upheld while you were serving. And if you get into hard times, reach out to someone. The reason I'm here in Mobiles because I was here to do uh, a veterans uh, hike to raise awareness for veteran suicide. Although uh, we're getting a hurricane and it got canceled, we're still going to have a hurricane party. <laughs> you know, uh, originally our podcast we were supposed to do it earlier, but uh, Mark, as I said, that you are yeah. uh, what you're a battalion commander yeah. and you got called up. That's why we had to get delayed. So you understand that. But I think that is one of the biggest things is don't let your time in service define who you are. That is just a chapter in your life. Uh, you have to take those same, um, the same principles, those same uh, guiding values and drive forward and keep doing on and keep upholding those values. And there are tons of organizations, and I'm sure, uh, Mark, that you can uh, let everybody listening know, but uh, I'm going to do the uh, uh, gratuitous call out that we have the Marine Corps League that me and both my father are part of, and anybody of any service can join, and we'd love to have you. And also... um, uh, the Recon and Sniper Foundation, we're nationwide as, as well as the Marine Corps League, but the Recon and Sniper Foundation is also out there. Uh, if you need help, we're the eyes and ears of the veteran community. A.B. Grantham, Joshua Grantham, thank you so much for your time, your service and sacrifice to our country and dedication. We sincerely appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. Thank you, sir. You've been listening to the Hazard Ground Podcast. Hosted by Mark Zeno and produced by Matt Pascarella. If you have an interesting story to tell and you'd like to be on the show, send us an email at hazardgroundpodcast at gmail.com. And if you like the show, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review on iTunes. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.